Church. Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, and you can find that on page 1018 in the Church Bibles. And that's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, on page 1018. The Greatest Commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hold before you your church. You promise that when two or three gather together in your name, you are there in the midst of them. Pray that we may honour that presence by the culture that we bring to your church, that we may live as a holy people who honour your name. And this we ask in the name of the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's very good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm known, I know quite a few of you. Um, Most of you will know Georgie, my wife, who comes to connect. And I kind of appear at various things here. To the extent you almost might say that St. Jude's is kind of almost the nearest I get to kind of a secondary home in the diocese beyond the cathedral. It's quite interesting. Some of you might have it in the back of your mind. Well, why did Adam ask me to be the person to preach on Safeguarding Sunday? And normally, what I talk to churches about is things like lay ministry, or I talk to them about theology and training or I talk to them about evangelism and growth and those sorts of things. So why then safeguarding? Well, during the pandemic, um, when kind of everything was locked down, I was asked to be the safeguarding lead, which was my role basically throughout pandemic. And during that time, there were two bits of work that I led for the diocese. And some of you may be aware of this, some of you may not be, some of you may be kind of aware of it because it's kind of somehow impacted on your lives. And the two bits of work were leading out a new framework of safeguarding training, and the other thing was something called Past Cases Review 2, which is otherwise known as by its acronym PCR2. And what those two things were about were about a change in Church of England culture. So the training was about a move away from a world in which what we talked about during kind of safeguarding training was what I describe as nuts and bolts things. 
So it was about previously things like DBS checks and confidential declaration forms and references and some of the stuff that's already been mentioned this morning and making sure that the governance was done appropriately. Now, none of that is incorrect or wrong and needs to all be done. But there's a greater question than simply everything being about kind of form filling. Ultimately, you can fill a lot of forms, but you can still actually have a culture in a church which is distinctly unhealthy. So that was one of the pieces of work, was to introduce a new training framework. And the new training framework was about <coughs> church culture. So it's about how we are church together how we look after and care for one another, how we spot what's actually going on in our church communities, how effectively we pastor one another to see that actually we have a duty of care for one another and for everybody who engages in the church's life and ministry. So it's kind of been a change in terms of safeguarding training. And for those of you who come on the training now, you'll notice that it's much less about kind of the form-filling stuff because ultimately you can find that out on the website. The real challenge for the church is how do we care for one another for those whom God entrusts to our care? So that's kind of the big, been the big change, a question that puts all the kind of governance stuff in, a, in a kind of a terms of culture. How do we run our culture? And the second thing was PCR2. So what PCR2 did, for those of you who don't know, is it basically was a file review. So we reviewed basically every file, personnel kind of file, that the diocese held since 1927 when it was created. Okay? So we did an entire review of everything we had done as a diocese, looking for the cases where things had gone wrong, where the church hadn't actually responded in the way that it should have. And the idea behind all of that was to learn the lessons when things had gone wrong and where we could actually put then things right that we had a duty of care to put them right. So it was about us being very honest as a diocese about everything that had happened and then saying, okay, well, then going forward with new training, what then should the future look like? So all of that has been going on through the pandemic. So then you're going to say, well, well, okay, so all of that's changing. Well, kind of, where does that fit in with the life of the church, with kind of, if like a theological rationale, with our view of what it is to be church and what it is that we do in this place? And I want to suggest to you that one of the things we could do is actually use today's passage as a way into thinking about that question. Because part of the problem, I think, for churches in the past is the way in which safeguarding has kind of come along has been the very secular thing. I've been ordained now for, what, 21 years. And when I was first ordained, child protection policy was really kind of, that was in a wave of things that were coming into the Church of England. And then safeguarding came in. 
And very often how I think these things were perceived was, if you like, that there was kind of secular things that were kind of coming into church life. And I want to suggest to you that that's not true, that actually you see safeguarding as something which is integral to the Christian life and faith and to the way in which we are church together. So in our reading this morning, you heard this question that's put to Jesus. And it's a question that's put to Jesus in all three of the synoptic Gospels. And in Mark's Gospel, it comes right towards the end of the Gospel. It's part of the kind of crescendo of questions that leads up eventually to Jesus' Last Supper, his crucifixion, death, resurrection. So this comes quite near the end of the Gospel. And it happens when Jesus is kind of dealing with questions he's being asked while he is in Jerusalem. And therefore it gives you a sense that actually this is quite an important question that's put to him. And it's put to him in part as as a trick. But in part, actually, the person who asked it wouldn't have expected Jesus to answer in any other way. Because this would have been a kind of a, almost a commonplace within Jewish culture in the first century. What was at the heart of the Jewish faith? Well, for some of the rabbis, they would just simply have given you this answer. That it was to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's fairly obvious, really, in one sense. But the question comes, well, that's all very well saying that, but what does it mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love God? And that's, of course, when it gets a bit more challenging. Because very often what we do when we say, well, actually, you need to love your neighbor as yourself, is it can become, let's be nice to the people we like. Okay? And that's quite a normal move in most societies. And it's what happens in most religious organizations, if we're honest. And one of the things that's often said when we do mission work with parishes, and we'll say to them, "Um, describe your parish. And they'll say, well, as a church, we're friendly. We're really friendly. We really like being together and being friendly to one another. Not very interested in anybody else. We just want to be friendly to one another. And it's very easy for any organization to get to a point where it basically becomes a club. And that our culture, because we're English, is very often about the idea that love basically means being nice. As long as we're kind of polite and civil to one another, then that is loving our neighbor. We don't want to be involved in anything which could be considered to be difficult or involve asking difficult questions, we'd much rather that everything stay at the level of being nice. So loving your neighbor becomes being nice to your friends. And for those of you who've read the Sermon on the Mount, you will actually know that Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what this means. And of course, in the in context of this gospel, the next passage is to say that this commandment is so radical that it's more important than the sacrifices in the temple. So that's what Mark goes on to say with it. 
If you read Luke's version, does anybody know what happens in Luke's version after this? The Good Samaritan. Well done. There you go. He also, you can tell the theological training obviously stuck. Um, the Good Samaritan is, is, is the, the thing that follows. Because then the question is put, well, who is my neighbor? And that parable is, is very clever in two ways. Firstly, the, the, and quite obviously, and most of you will know this, that the story of the Good Samaritan basically says, well, actually, your neighbor includes people that you might not normally associate with. So the divide between somebody who, for instance, is, um, would identify as Jewish and somebody who would identify as being Samaritan in the first century, that gap and that tension would be such that it would be very difficult for one to reach out to another. And yet that parable says that that's the duty. That even those who don't seem to belong to our group, so to speak, nonetheless, they are those with whom we are charged with their care. We can't just ignore them and say, well, actually, we're going to leave them on the side of the road and pretend they don't exist. We're not to be like the priest or the Levite who walk past on the other side and pretend that the person doesn't exist. Instead, the the parable points out that there has to be a sense of care. And many of you will know that in the Christian tradition, one of the things that's true is that hospitality, the idea of welcome, is the fundamental commandment. It's more important to offer hospitality to somebody than to do anything else. So something about caring for the stranger that is at the heart of loving your neighbor. And the second part of it is, also, is a kind of almost more radical, and it's the bit we forget most, which is that if you remember that parable and how it's set up, is that the person who asks it in Luke's Gospel says, who is my neighbor? And what you expect is therefore a story which tells you to do something. So the way we normally tell the story of the Good Samaritan, if we tell us the story that goes as follows, we say, well, actually, you should be like the Samaritan. You all familiar with that idea? That you, we tell the story, and what we say is that we must be like the Samaritan, and we must be those who do the care. But actually, the parable is a bit more radical than that, because what the parable, in fact, says is there was a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the person we're meant to be like is not to be like the Samaritan, but in fact, we're meant to imagine ourselves as being like the person who's mugged in the street that the Samaritan cares for. That's the point of that parable. So the radicalness of that parable is not just simply a challenge for us to offer care to the stranger, but also our ability to accept care. So one thing I want to say to you on this Safeguarding Sunday is there's something about the church learning to be a place of radical care. You'll all remember at the beginning of Genesis, the question is asked by Cain, you know, am I my brother's keeper? 
To which the answer that basically God implicitly gives is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper, and you're meant to care. And the life of every church should be about that giving and receiving of care. And that can be quite challenging, because just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, it means stopping, it means asking, it means finding out. It means following things up. And that's the duty of each and every one of us. So there's something about good safeguarding practice in the life of every church being that which God would have us do. Because if ultimately you think about it, well, where is it then that kind of Scripture comes together at the end? The image ultimately at the end of Scripture is of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what you get in Revelation 21. You get this idea of a community gathered together in the presence of God, in which they fully know one another and they are fully known by God. A place in which there is no tension, no conflict, in which there is peace. And there's something about our churches manifesting that life kind of in the here and now. That we are a people, ultimately, who believe that we have been forgiven, sanctified, blessed by God. That we are those who are meant to manifest the life of God's holiness. And so as we think about what it is to love our neighbour, we are called to manifest that kind of radical love that Christ has for the world, where he comes and cares for fallen humanity. So as we think on this safeguarding Sunday about what it is to be church in this place, I want to suggest to you that it's worth thinking about those commands to love God and to love our neighbour and to think about them in their most radical sense. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Thank you, Anthony. Will you stand with me?